Let's go to Lord's Word. Uh, we're in the book of Daniel, as we have read and as we've been reminded in prayer. Daniel is a, a book that helps us understand the realities that we face in life as Christians. Well, Daniel is set in a place called Babylon, by and large, and while well, he prays for the city of Jerusalem, and it can be rightly maybe called a tale of two cities, the book of ba uh, Daniel. Really, it is the tale of this incredible conflict that the world has been in since the beginning of time. And uh, I think as I have been reflecting on this a little bit, the issue is not so much what city we live in as it is what city we live for. You might go to uh, Hebrews, for instance, and you will find there uh, uh, the reminder about Abraham as he walked in this world in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10. I had it marked, but somewhere it's gone, but we'll read it. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, it says there that he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer is the builder of God. That even though he lived on this earth and he dwelled in this earth and he had cities on this earth that he lived in, he still was looking forward to a heavenly city whose builder and architect was God. I was thinking also in Revelation, as I've been rereading Revelation now in my own personal devotions, in the, the church in Pergamum, God says to them, or the angel says to them, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. So it's not so much what city we live in, but rather it's what city we live for. And we see that in Daniel now as he is found in, uh, once again in Babylon and yet his heart and his prayer is directed towards the city of Jerusalem. Again, it wasn't so much the city that he lived in, but it was the city that he lived for. I want to look at uh, basically five statements as we go through this first part of the chapter this morning. Five statements, each followed by a question. And I want you to think about each of these statements in the context of prayer and of your prayer and of our praying as a church. For I think in Daniel 9, we are given a significant opportunity to think and to learn about prayer. And each one of these statements, as I've been reflecting on them, has had considerable impact on me in the last few weeks. The first statement and question is simply this. God answers prayer. Are you convinced? This prayer in Daniel chapter 9 seems to come out of nowhere. Aren't you just a little bit curious as to why, in the midst of all these visions of monstrous beasts and of clashing kingdoms and of crazy rams and of triumphing goats and thrones in heaven, that in the middle of this, all of a sudden, that apocalyptic literature stops and we come to a down-to-the-earth prayer? I was. It struck me. This prayer, this normal language, just seems to come out of nowhere. This prayer, this extended account of prayer, is actually one of the longest recorded prayers that we have in the Bible. And it seems, well, it seems a little out of place, again, in the book of Daniel. Well, as I thought about it, at least for me, there's maybe two reasons why, in the midst of all this apocalyptic literature and this incredible shifting and clashing of kingdoms and worlds, why this prayer is here. And the first reason I thought about is simply this. Prayer makes a difference. It's amazing to me that in the midst of all of this, that, that with things changing at a dizzying pace, with Daniel even saying he's now at the transition of another world kingdom, 
as he sees these kingdoms rising and falling, as kings kind of coming and going, he might say to himself, well, what can I do? Well, he prays. He's confident that his prayer is heard by heaven above. And in fact, uh, the last part of the, what Barry read this morning, you see that Daniel says, now hear God, act God. And in fact, we'll come next week to see in verse 20, 21, and 22. Well, it's as he was praying, his answer comes to him in the form of Gabriel, the angel. Daniel was absolutely convinced that God hears and answers prayer. And so in the midst of this incredible time of turmoil, this incredible shifting in the kingdoms of man, Daniel drops to his knees in prayers, prays because he is convinced that God hears prayer. I wrote this sentence, when monsters rule, don't despair. When kingdoms are clashing, don't give up. Don't give in because God hears and answers prayer. I think there's another reason, though, why this prayer is inserted where it is in this particular place in the book of Daniel. If you've been following along with us, this book of Daniel to this point has been emphasizing the sovereignty of God. That God is sovereign over the affairs of kingdoms. God is sovereign over the affairs of mankind. God is sovereign over the individual lives of mankind. In fact, to Belshazzar, he says, I hold your breath in my hand and I direct every one of your ways. And so this book is about the sovereignty of God. And so I think this prayer, and I would challenge you to go home and think about this, but I think part of this prayer is to help us wrestle with this question, if God is sovereign, why pray? If everything is planned and God knows its end and its beginning, what's the point of praying? If God knows it, plans it, determines it, fulfills it, if his rule is complete, then why pray? We find this throughout Scripture. We, we can jump back to James or ahead to James, and there we read there that the, the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. There the author would have us to believe and would demonstrate that prayer actually makes a difference in the world in which we live. And so what we see in Daniel, I think, is a progression from faith in God's sovereign reign and rule to passionate prayer. And it's exactly the opposite of us asking the question, if God is sovereign, why pray? Daniel would have responded, is because God is sovereign that I pray. And I think you ought to think about that, and it certainly helped me to revisit that again. It's because God is sovereign that I pray. Been reading a, a little book, or I read it uh, a few weeks back or a month or so back. It's a very quick read, and I actually think it's in our library. But it's a little book on prayer. And he gives four reasons for prayer. And he says the third reason we pray explains why our prayers can be meaningful and purposeful in both time and eternity. We pray because God is a sovereign God. You see, Daniel had worked through the biblical teaching on divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And he knew, that God, he, he knew what God had foreordained. He knew Jeremiah's prophecy here, which is the focus of his prayer, was not conditional. He knew that God would fulfill his word. He knew that after 70 years of captivity, God would send his people back to Jerusalem. He knew that God would do what God had said he would do. And that's why he prayed. 
He didn't say, well, if God is going to do it, there's no need for me to labor in prayer over this question. No, Daniel rightly understood that God's sovereignty was not a problem for prayer. It was the reason for prayer. Because God had it planned out, uh, Daniel could come and pray with confidence and plead with God to fulfill his word. I was thinking about these, and these are crude explanations, but they help me. If an architect has designed a building, then we might say, well, why build it? Well, the building doesn't build itself, does it? And the way that the architect's plans become reality is through the work of builders. I know it's a crude analogy, but it helps me understand that even though God has got everything planned, somehow in his sovereign will and determination, my praying is the part or the way in which those plans in many respects are fulfilled. What do lobbyists do? Who do lobbyists lobby when they want something done? You don't see them lining upside my office every week trying to take me to dinner and paying $1,500 to sit at lunch with me so that they can ask me to do something for them. They go to people who can actually accomplish what they want them to do. They go to people who have the power to accomplish what the request is they have. It's the same way with us. We go to God to do what only God can do. And so Daniel was convinced that prayer mattered because God was sovereign. Two times in the Bible I found that uh, people begin praying with this incredible phrase, and I'm started to do it in certain circumstances already in my life, but you find it in Acts chapter 4, verse 24, and in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, where they begin their prayer with sovereign Lord. Isn't that a great way to start your prayer? That as you begin praying, you already pray to a God who is powerful, who knows all things, who knows the end from the beginning, and you begin your prayer with that confidence, Sovereign Lord. And so Daniel reminds us here about the importance of prayer. And I think if you go away with anything this morning, if you go away with only one thing, go away with this, that prayer matters, that prayer makes a difference, that God answers prayer. Are you convinced of that? Daniel was. The second thing that we see in here is simply this. God has spoken. Does that shape you? God has spoken. Does that shape you? Daniel is writing at a significant point in history, as we've been mentioning. The Babylonian Empire has fallen. There's a new king in place. There's a new kingdom in place. And at the time of the reading, he's meditating on Scripture. In other words, this prayer is birthed out of his meditation on Scripture. And he's reading in Jeremiah a couple places probably. And he, first he says, this is what the Lord says, Jeremiah. You will be in Babylon for 70 years. But then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised. And I will bring you home again. See, the Babylonian Empire has fallen now, and Daniel is revisiting Jeremiah's prophecy, and it's driven him to his knees. It's God's word and God's promise that has shaped his praying. He believed that God had spoken. He believed that God had promised. And so that drove him to his knees to ask God to fulfill his promise on behalf of his people. We pray because God is a speaking God. Isn't that true? That's why we pray. I really hope that this sinks into us today. I think when you don't know what to pray, and I think sometimes we find ourselves that way, then begin searching the Scriptures. 
Think about what you're thinking and go to scriptures and say, well, what has God said about this? And then take those promises, take those prophecies, take those words of God and turn them into prayer. Pray to God the things that God has spoken, the promises that God has made. I think I mentioned last week, thinking about Psalm or Philippians 1.6, where it says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. If you've wrestled with God's work in your life this past week, if you've wrestled with your failures this past week, if you've wrestled with your sin this past week, what a beautiful promise to pray back to God and say, Oh God, in spite of my weakness, in spite of my failures, in spite of my sin, you have promised to complete what you started in my life. And will you bring about that work in me? You take the promises of God and you turn them into prayer and you hold the promises or you hold God's feet, so to speak, to the promises, if I can say that with reverence. Think about that with Psalm 23. Think about that with, with, with Psalm 1. Think about that with Matthew chapter 6. Um, just take those scriptures and lay them out before God and pray them out on behalf of yourself and on behalf of your family. This really isn't anything strange, is it? You know, if you have children, you understand this. What do your children hold you to? They hold you to your word. And if you say to them, well, you know, you're working all week and Tuesday comes along and they're answering, you say, well, listen, on Saturday I'm going to take you fishing. All week long, they'll keep saying, you promised you're going to take me fishing. Are we going fishing, Dad? Are we going? And they'll keep asking you about fishing because you've given them your word. Or, you know, maybe you've been at home and you've said, listen, at the end of the school when it's breakfast time and you come home from school today, we're going to go to the park after school. And so as they're driving to school, remember, Mom, you said we're going to go to the park. And you pick them up, and Mom, you said we're going to go to, well, I've got, no, you said we're going to go to the park. We hold the parents to their word. That's the same thing we do with prayer. We hold God to his word. We, we, we lift his promises before him, not in a sense to remind him, but to participate in the fulfillment of those promises. This is the basis of a lot of praying. It's really praying the promises of God. Prayer experiences, or, or sorry, expresses our confidence and trust that God keeps his word. You see, Daniel prayed that God would do what he promised to do. He prayed with confidence because he was praying what God had promised to do. It was the Lord's promises that drove Daniel to prayer. One commentator, I love the way he put this. It's a great mental picture. He says, it's as if God's promises have Velcro on them and our prayers are to get stuck there. Isn't that a beautiful picture? This promise to prayer pattern means that Christians should let the Bible become their prayer book. How often do we pray with a Bible open? How often as we're spending time calling out to God, is it with our Bible open before us and calling out to God um, belief in his promises. Beloved, God has spoken. Does that shape you? The third point that I see in this prayer is God's character matters. Do you know him? It's woven all through this scripture. I think the first two statements help us orient ourselves in prayer. Now we come to the prayer itself in verse 4. And all praying has to start somewhere. And we have to invoke something or someone to hear our prayers. For the Christian, we pray to God. As Jesus told us to pray, when we begin praying, we say, Our Father, who art in heaven. It seems to me that though we are very much in a hurry to get to our stuff, 
that we, we just want to quickly say, hi, God, and then we want to dump on him or ask him all the stuff that's on our heart and on our mind. And that's okay, because God says, bring your prayers and your petitions to me. But notice that Daniel starts a little bit with this, and he says, oh, Lord, our great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant with steadfast love to those who love him and keeps his commandment. He's overwhelmed with a view of God. He's full of the character of God. He knows to whom he's praying. And I think sometimes it would help us if before we rushed into prayer, we just spent a few moments just thinking about the awesome greatness of God, taking some of his characteristics and talking to him about them, reminding ourselves of them as we begin to lay out our prayer before him. Daniel talks about all these things. He says, God is great. He rules from his throne in heaven. He humbles the proud. He exalts the humble. God is awesome. He's to be feared. He protects from fire. He protects from lions. He takes away sound thinking. He restores the mind. He raises up kingdoms. He sets down other kingdoms. God is faithful. He's entered into a covenant with us, which is part of the amazing reality of this prayer that even though the people have been so grievously sinful, God is faithful to the covenant that he's entered into them, which is part of the reason Daniel prays the way that he does. It's such truths, loved ones, about the character of God that ought to shape our praying. So I would say God's character matters. Do you know him? And then fourthly, our sin is grievous. Do you feel it? Our sin is grievous. Do you feel it? You see, in contrast to the faithfulness of God that Daniel begins his prayer with, that God is a covenant-keeping God. He's steadfast towards his people. Daniel then says the flip side of it is, your people are so faithless. And he begins to just recount to them their, their sin, and it's because of uh, his sin and because of God's or greatness and God's purity that Daniel really has this sense that he really doesn't belong in God's presence. This awesome awareness of his sin and God's greatness was evidence of Daniel's humility as he comes before the Lord here in prayer. And I hope you noticed as Daniel prays this, we might say, well, Daniel, what an incredible man of God. Daniel, of anyone, is separated from God's people. He's unique. But go through this prayer and underline the references to we and us and are. Daniel understands his sinfulness. Daniel understands that, that in, his, in his heart and in the depths of his heart that he belongs with the people and that his sins are the people's sins and the people's sins are his sins. There's an identification. There's a corporate reality. He doesn't remove himself like the Pharisee and say, well, I thank God that I'm not like that man over there, a sinner, an extortioner. Daniel says, no, I'm like that humble man in the corner who's beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He says, oh, Daniel, if you read this prayer, and we're just, I'm just landing on bits of piece of it, and I, I hope you go back and think deeply about this, but it's, a, it's as if Daniel is at a loss to articulate the full extent of the people's sin. It's like he can't find enough words to, to describe the nature of sin. Verse 5 in itself is, is just a staggering verse. He says there, we have sinned. It's the general word for sin. 
It means we have missed the mark. We have fallen short of what God wants of us. He says we've committed iniquity. We've perverted or bent or twisted or distorted or made crooked God's commands. We've acted wickedly. We've been opposed to the one who has done right. We've rebelled against him. It's in our heart. We revolt. We rebel. We, we don't want God to rule over us. We've turned aside from the ways of God. And that's just the first five. And he goes on and he talks about how we will not listen. How when God disciplines us, we ignore it and we walk the other way. It's this, 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 we've acted treacherously. We've not obeyed your voice. We've not listened to you. We've not rebelled, we've not, uh, we, we, we've rebelled against you. You see, there's no victim mentality here in Daniel. Rather, he makes a clear admission that their sinning is a deliberate act of rejection of God and God's ways. And he's at a loss for words to continue to describe the reality and the depth of their sin. And added to their sin is the results of their sin. He says, we feel humiliation, we feel shame, and we understand that the righteous anger of God as a result has been poured out on us and we've received his anger. The curse has been applied to us. Judgment and punishment are ours because of our sin. He's aware of this tangled mess of ugliness. And it's breaking his heart and it's weighing him down. And in fact, the bulk of the prayer is given over to his confession before God. It's a brutal all the way around. It doesn't soften the reality of his sinfulness or the sinfulness of God's people. But even woven in his confession is this thread of hope, which is so amazing as we tie it in with Zechariah's prayer that our hope is God. That God is merciful, God is compassionate, that God is forgiving, that God is righteous. On our own, we don't have a leg to stand on. On our own, we want nothing to do with God. We don't want to turn to His ways. Our only hope is that God would come down and redeem us. I wonder if the back, in the back of his mind, Daniel had the song, which we know so well now, but he didn't know then, but he knew the concepts. My hope is, my hope is built on nothing less. In Jesus' blood and righteousness, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus. Some of you might have caught verses 13b to verse 14. This bothered me, these verses. And I, I think I know why they have bothered me, because they remind me of myself. All of this has happened to them. They have sinned. They have suffered. God has punished them. Daniel says, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. See, Daniel's confession doesn't end very well. Sin has not grieved the people of God. Punishment has not had its desired effect. He's as much as saying they still remain unbroken, unchanged, unrepentant, and deaf. One commentator called this verse and a half the great omission. What distresses Daniel is certainly Israel has a history of rebellion and idolatry and has suffered God's judgment for it. But what distresses him even more is that all of that has not driven them to godly grief and genuine repentance. We are a stubborn lot. 
We are a rebellious people. Are we grieved by our sin? Are we moved by our sin to confession and repentance? Is it evidence in our personal life? Is it evident in our corporate life as a church together? Even churches engage in sin together. Revelations 2 and 3 describes churches in their sinfulness. And it seems like they, they were sort of rushing headlong in their sinfulness. And God said, listen, this is your problem. Do this and you'll be okay. And how many of us churches respond with brokenness and repentance before God? I think one of the primary marks of growing in the faith as an individual and as a church is a continual mourning over our sin. It's a continual recognition of the way that we grieve God and rebel against God and the way that we don't want to bring our lives back in line with Him. And Daniel is troubled by their lack of repentance. You see, we can turn to those, though, in Scripture that give us a glimpse of two, true repentance. Psalm 51 is such a beautiful psalm. The first couple of verses articulate the same words of sin and the same expanse of sin that Jeremiah gives us in chapter 9, verse 5. David was crushed by his sin. He was overwhelmed by the weight of his sin. He was bruised by, by the iniquities of his sin in his own heart. But then he repents. And he turns from his wicked ways and he cries out to God and he says, God, forgive me. God, restore me. God, give me back your spirit. And then I will tell sinners your way. I will lead them in the path of repentance and life. Or you can go to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 to 32, which are an amazing passage of Scripture. And there the prophet tells us, what God is about to do so His great name and His holiness would be seen among the nations. And part of that work would be to work among the Israelites and to bring them back. And in bringing them back, He said that God, or God said, I will cleanse them and I will give them a new heart and I will put my spirit within them. And He says that He will move them to keep His laws and He will save them and bless them. And then He says this, Then you will remember your evil ways and your wicked deeds and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detectable practice. Have you ever done that? Have you ever loathed yourself because of your sin and your detestable practices? Ezekiel is certainly not in any self-help book on self-esteem. Daniel was aware of the grievous nature of sin. Our sin is grievous. Do you feel it? Does it move you to repentance? And finally, this is the high point, I think, of the prayer. God's glory is primary. Does it motivate you? See, woven through this whole prayer and all that Daniel is praying, and we're going to get to the next part of it next week, which is beautiful in its connection with Christmas. It takes him a little bit of time to get to his petitions before God, but we find them in verse 15 and verse 17, where after confessing his sins and loathing himself for his sins and worrying about the people because they won't repent, he says, Now you, O Lord, turn away your anger and your wrath. Hear the prayers and petitions of your ser servant. And what does Daniel ask for? He says, Well, God, will you glorify your name? Will you glorify your city? 
Will you glorify your people? He's not in it for himself. He's concerned about the glory of God. He's concerned that the people's sin has caused God's name to be blasphemed. And the people of the nations will be going around saying, Ha! Here's God. He delivered this group of people from Egypt, and now he doesn't have the power to sustain them. Here's God. He's just like all the rest of the gods in the world. He can't answer their prayers. He doesn't hear their prayers. He's impotent to do anything about them. Here's God. He's got this city and his people. Look, his city is in ruins. His people are captive. And Daniel is aghast by that. He's saying, God, don't let it be. Like, for the sake of your glory and for the glory of your name, restore your people, restore your city, restore this nation, glorify your name. Is that part of our praying? As we pray for our lost children, as we pray for our lost grandchildren, as we pray for our marriage that maybe is in shattered and torn, God, don't do it for me. Do it for the glory of your name. Let people look at our marriage and say, wow, look what God has done for them. May God look at our kids and say, wow, look at how God has saved them from the depths of the sin they were in. Look at this church and say, God would say, people would say, wow, look at what God has done in the city of Parksville for his great name and for his glory. Isn't that what we pray? Isn't that what Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father, what's the first petition? Our Father who art in heaven, what? Hallowed be thy name. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. Daniel was consumed not with himself. He was broken by his sin, but he was consumed with the glory of God. Oh, may that grip our praying more and more as we pray for ourselves, as we pray for our families, as we pray for our community, as we pray for our church. That our needs and wishes and wants would take second place like a far distant second place to the glory and the name of God. As we come then to the Lord's table this morning, I think what an amazing passage and prayer this is for us to come to this table. Because we get a glimpse of our faithful God in all His awesomeness, His fearfulness, His power, His abounding mercy, His compassion, and His forgiveness. And we're confronted at the same time with our own sinfulness and our own rebellion and our own stopped up ear. And it's amazing how those things come together here at this table. Because we recognize at this table that our salvation is God's doing. We recognize at this table that our acceptance before God is Christ's doing. We recognize at this table that our ability to comprehend any of this is the Spirit's doing. And so as we come to this table today, let's mourn our sin afresh. Let's not skirt over it. And I will encourage you to just take some time and just feel the weight of our sin together. Feel the power and the glory of God's grace and compassion and forgiveness that are ours in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning as we gather around this table now. 
may something of its reality hit home again in our hearts today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.